Tonight we will be continuing on our series in the Gospel of John. So we will be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, if you would turn there. John 1, verses 19 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we hear this proclamation of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, pray that you would write it on our hearts that Christ has come as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Pray that we would know this truth, confess this truth as John confessed it, and that we would live our lives accordingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Suppose that you, and only you, got some very large news that affects the whole human race. Something of urgent significance. Perhaps a matter of life and death. Maybe you learned of some invasion or warfare that was imminent. Maybe you learned of some disease that was coming that was going to wipe out much of the population. Maybe aliens were invading. Something big was going on. Something that was going to alter the course of history. And you, and only you, knew about it. What would you do? How would you get the word out? Where would you go? Who would you tell? Well, in these days, you'd probably want to go get on TV, get on the radio, get on the internet, 
uh, get where you can get the word out to a lot of people quickly. You probably head for the city because that's where all that stuff is based, the TV and radio and such. Uh, there's access to more media, more broadcasting. You'd go to where people are uh, and where people can hear. You'd probably want to go get on Fox News or CNN or whoever people watch these days and tell everyone this big news. But God's ways are not our ways. God does not do his work or send his messengers in the ways we might expect. Last week, we began looking at the Gospel of John. We looked at the prologue in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. It spoke of the Trinitarian glory of God and the wonder of the incarnation of the Son, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then, as a brief aside in that section, we were very quickly introduced to John the Baptist. He was described in verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for, came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So John was sent as the forerunner, the one who came before Christ to let people know that he was on the way. On tonight's passage, we get more information and more of the story of this man, John the Baptist, and his ministry. We find that though he is a rather unusual man, in an unusual place, doing unusual things, he is God's appointed and chosen means to bear witness to Christ's coming. Particularly, the author, John the Apostle, he will give us insight into the man and ministry of John the Baptist through three parts of a conversation that he has. Uh, two with the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem, and then a third part, the, what, what John says the next day. And so those will be our three points tonight. First, we will see confusion over John in verses 19 through 21. These priests and Levites, they have some ideas about John, which are wrong for the most part. Second, we will see the commission of John. Who is John really, and what has he been called to do? What is his task? We see this in verses 22 through 28. And then third and finally, we will see the confession of John in verses 29 through 34. What was John's message concerning the one who was to come? So again, we have confusion over John, the commission of John, and the confession of John. So first we will look at the confusion over John in verses 19 through 21. So in verse 19 begins this narrative of John the Baptist. We find out that the Jews, the leaders of the Judeans in Jerusalem, the religious and societal leaders of the Jewish people, they sent some priests and Levites to find out about this John. Now, why were they doing this? While it's not recorded for us here in the book of John, the ministry of John the Baptist was causing quite a stir. It was causing a lot of disruption. Turn over with me briefly to Matthew chapter 3. I want to take a look at some of this commotion that John was causing. In Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6, we see what John was up to.
Sorry. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, and this is something we also see in John, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So, I mentioned in the opening how we might think we would spread big news if we had it, world-changing, history-altering news. But then God's ways are not our ways. Here is the way, perhaps the rather strange and unconventional way, that God chose to deliver and announce the biggest news in the history of the world. John is in the wilderness of Judea. He's in the desert. He's in a place with little food or water, scorching hot sun, not the place where you would expect a major religious revival to break out. This would be almost like if somebody turned up out west over in the Badlands and started preaching and then everybody in the world starts going out to him. That would be quite a scene. In fact, the place where we find out in verse 28 of John 1 that these events took place, Bethbara beyond Jordan or Bethany beyond Jordan, depending on your translation, we're not even exactly sure where this place was. There's a lot of different theories, but no certainty as to what this site was. It was probably not a well-known or prominent place. In fact, I looked at four different commentaries trying to figure out where this might be, and they all said different things, so I give up. I don't know where it is, and I don't think anybody else does either. But all this to say, this was a remote, desolate wilderness. Now, the wilderness was typically associated with death, with the absence of life. But in the coming of John and in the coming of Christ, we see a reversal. We see John minister in the wilderness. At other times, we see Christ tempted in the wilderness in his work to win back what Adam lost. The wilderness now becomes a place of life-giving. Now, John, he was a sight to see. As I read, he was wearing camel skin, a leather belt. He was a man of the wilderness. He was no priest, though he was the son of a priest. He was no scholar. He was no ruler. He was a man of the wild. He ate locusts and wild honey. So, lives in the wilderness, dresses like he lives in the wilderness, eats bugs and the things that bugs make, and he comes and starts preaching repentance. But however unconventional John was, his ministry, because he was appointed by God to do it, was quite effective. In Matthew 3, 5, we see that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him to hear his preaching, to be baptized and to confess their sins. Now his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he came at a time where there had been no new revelation from God in nearly 400 years since the last of the Old Testament scriptures were written. He came to a people hungry 
thirsty for God's word and God's work. And so they get a skin-wearing, bug-eating, wild man preacher in the middle of the wilderness. But turn now back to John 1. So in light of this unconventional religious revival breaking out in the desert, these leaders of Judea, they hear about John and they want to know what's going on. Perhaps they are suspicious. Based on what we will find out about the state of the Jewish religious establishment at the time of Jesus, it may be that they came with less than pure motives. Perhaps they saw John as they would later see Jesus as a threat to their traditions and their power and their influence. Now, there seems to be at least some suspicion from somewhere that John might be the Christ. He might be the Messiah. Some might be saying this about John because this is what they ask John. After these 400 years of silence, there was a lot of messianic expectations in Israel in the first century. People were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a deliverer. Now, not only was it because there had been this silence, this lack of revelation, but also by this point, Judea was a subjugated state. They were controlled by the Roman Empire, and they hoped to once again regain their independence and their land. They did not control their own country. They were hoping for a deliverer that would restore the former glory, the glory of Moses and the glory of David. Well, some apparently thought that this skin-wearing, bug-eating wilderness preacher might just fit the bill. But John puts this to rest immediately. He denies being the Christ. He denies being the expected Messiah. But the next question that John gets is a bit more tricky. If perhaps John is not the Christ, maybe he is the return of Elijah. The very last prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says this, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So that's how the Old Testament ends. It's la- it leaves off with this expectation of Elijah to come. So at some point, in some way, Elijah is expected to return. Now John also here denies being Elijah. And yet if you are familiar with the other Gospels, and when Jesus faces this issue of who John the Baptist is, Jesus identifies John as Elijah. So what's going on there? Was Jesus wrong to identify John this way? Well, no, he's Jesus. He's right about everything. (laughs) What is likely the case is that while John is the fulfillment of this prophecy of Malachi, while he is the Elijah, the great prophet, come to announce the Lord's coming, John himself is not aware of this. John is probably taking the question literally, Seems the expectation of that day is that the very person of Elijah who lived in the Old Testament at the time of King Ahab would actually rise from the dead and proclaim judgment before the day of the Lord. Perhaps there's a bit of a warning in here about 
against insisting on a too literal interpretation of biblical prophecies of future events, like some want to do. John goes forth with the spirit and power of Elijah, and in this way is the fulfillment of the prophecy, as the, just as the angel announced he would be in the foretelling of John's birth in Luke 1.17. But he is not the literal, physical reappearance or reincarnation of Elijah, and so he answers no to the question. So, the inquisitors, they try another option for who John is in verse 21. Are you the prophet? Now, this is not just a reference to any old prophet, this is a reference to Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, where a great prophet like Moses would be raised up from among his brothers, from among Israel. Now that prophecy actually is referring to the coming of Christ and his prophetic office. He is the prophet who will speak truly. So once again, this prophecy does not refer to John. So, strike three for the priests and the Levites trying to figure out what's going on with John. They have failed to identify John, and even as it pertains to the Elijah prophecy, John has in a certain way failed to identify himself. But John does know something of his prophetic commission, and this brings us to our second point. And so after this confusion over John, we get some clarity in the commission of John in verses 22 through 28. Having given up at this point on trying to guess who John is, the priests and the Levites decide to just ask him, Who are you that, you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Basically, our bosses are going to be very mad at us if we came all the way out here and don't come back with any idea as to who you are. Well, John has thus far denied being these three prophetic figures, but he does know of one prophecy very clearly that he has been sent to fulfill, and this is the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. John knows that he has been sent as the forerunner of the Lord. He has come to prepare the way. Now here we get a side note, an important side note. Those who were sent, these priests and Levites, they were from the Pharisees. And it is here we are introduced to this group that would be Jesus' frequent sparring partners throughout his earthly ministry. They would eventually conspire to put Jesus to death. The Pharisees, they were part of the religious establishment of the time. The most strict of all the different sects, the different subdivisions of Judaism when it came to keeping the law. But they largely miss the Christ who comes in fulfillment of that law, and they struggle similarly to understand John. But these envoys to the Pharisees, they next ask John, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? As we saw in Matthew 3, John was baptizing people who repented and confessed their sins. This, more than John's preaching, was the concern of these messengers. By this point, the Jewish religious establishment had become so concerned with outward signs, washings, rituals, purifications, 
even above and beyond what the ceremonial law of Moses required, that it wasn't the preaching, it wasn't any of that, it was the baptism that drew the attention of the Pharisees. As William Hendrickson comments, it was the baptizing rather than the preaching which vexed these priests as they were question, as they questioned the son of a priest. Priests were supposed to know all about lustrations, washings. They certainly knew that not just anybody was allowed to administer rites of purification. End quote. So they were so focused on these physical and earthly things, these ceremony, the washing that John was doing, that they completely missed the point of it. They missed the greater, deeper spiritual realities that John came to testify to and that his baptism came to symbolize. Now this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the rest of John. Those who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people and focused on their spiritual care will miss a great work of God in their midst. But John's answer reveals a different set of priorities that he has. He says, I baptize you with water, but... I'll come back to the rest in a second. But so the washing with water, the thing that seems to have the Pharisees riled up, is not what is preeminent to John. Something greater is still coming. He continues, there stands one among you whom you do not know. Now by this point, Jesus was alive. He was around. He had not yet appeared publicly, but his work was imminent. His ministry was about to begin. It is he, continuing in John's quote, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, from this, we can take two conclusions. First, we see that John here is showing great humility. He is a prophet. He is chosen by God to fulfill a special biblical role. At one point, Jesus even refers to John the Baptist as the greatest man who ever lived. But the last thing that John is interested in doing is talking about and glorifying himself. You can see this in how he answers this line of questioning at first. His answers are short. They're almost abrupt. John's job is not to answer questions about himself. Talking about himself is not the job that he was sent to do. Rather, he was sent to prepare the way of the one who is to come. And not only does John want to point people to him, but he counts himself as nothing in comparison. He, is not, he says he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Now, in that day, feet were disgusting. People walked everywhere. They wore sandals. They had to get all kinds of dirt and grime and disgusting things in their feet. They didn't bathe regularly, so feet were just nasty, awful business in the first century. But John says he's not even worthy to do the most dirty and degrading business of caring for Jesus. Second, though, we also see in John's baptism and the Pharisees' concern for it, a disconnect between the sign, the outward washing of baptism, and the thing signified. The Pharisees were so concerned about John doing this strange washing ritual, worried he might be stepping on their turf, since they were so vigorous and rigorous about the ceremonial laws and commands, but they are not concerned 
about John's proclamation of messianic power. They're not concerned about the gospel. They're not concerned about the coming of Christ. See, those who perform religious rituals receive nothing of significance in them unless the Holy Spirit applies them by faith. The Pharisees would have done everything right in terms of God's law and its ceremonial requirements, but their hearts were focused on themselves and their own agendas, and they were far from God. John, he was a bit unconventional in ceremonial terms, but he shows great faith, hope, and love for Christ. This is important for us. We have to avoid the trap of legalism. We have to avoid ascribing weight to our deeds and our acts and our ceremonies and missing the point of them, which is Christ. Christ is preeminent. Christ is all in all. But now in our third and final point, Christ appears. So after the confusion of John and the commission of John, we come to the confession of John in verses 29 through 34. On the next day, Jesus appears at the site where John is baptizing. This is the first time in the narrative of this story that Jesus appears. Now we know that this is after Jesus' temptation and baptism, as John is about to speak concerning what happened at Jesus' baptism. So this is in the past. So this means that John has seen Jesus before and knows who he is. And on the side of him, John has a powerful reaction. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Set against the background of the Old Testament, with which John as a priest's son would have been quite familiar, it is crystal clear what John is saying. John recognizes that Jesus will be the atoning sacrifice to fulfill and end all atoning sacrifices. He will take away the sins of the world. The sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls in the Old Testament, while a picture, a type of atonement, they were not adequate to the task. But from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it is known that he is the Lamb of God to take away sin. John continues, declaring that this Jesus is the one who was before him, and who is preferred to him. Jesus is the one that John told the priests and the Levites that he was unworthy to even untie his sandal. And John also confesses that his purpose is intertwined with Christ's. He came baptizing so that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. And Jesus is revealed to Israel in John's proclamation And also, when John baptized Jesus, God's revelation was seen even there. John references that here. But let me also read for you briefly the account of Jesus' baptism from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
So when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the Spirit descended like a dove and remained on Jesus, which John is testifying to, he's recalling here in John. And then also, God the Father spoke and was heard. So the baptism of Jesus was an act of full Trinitarian revelation on display, continuing this theme we looked at in the prologue of John last week. But also, we see that Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of God's purposes to make an end to sin through Christ's once-for-all atoning sacrifice. And this coming has been proclaimed and testified by this forerunner, John the Baptist. And John had prophetic revelation to confirm this. He was told that the one whom he saw the Spirit descend upon, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So again, we see an aspect of the, this relationship between the sign and the thing signified in John's baptism. John baptizes with water. That's all he does. He applies water. But it is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who gives true baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism that cleanses of sins and brings new life. And so the purpose of John and his baptism is to magnify the person and work of Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the fulfillment and reality of baptism. Christ comes to a lost and dying and confused world to bring forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Christ is the full revelation of God, come in the flesh, sent and confirmed by the Father, anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the Christ who John worships and humbled himself before, and this is the Christ that we are to worship and humble ourselves before. Perhaps you are here tonight, you have not heard or understood this gospel that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus lived the perfect life that no other person ever has, and he died a brutal, horrible death to make that atoning sacrifice, to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life are offered to those who would repent and believe in him. Perhaps, unlike John, you are here tonight, but you are more like one of the Pharisees. You are proud. You're resting and trusting in yourself, your own knowledge, your own abilities, relying on your laws and traditions. It is only in the Lamb of God that there is the taking away of sins. Nothing you can do, as the song we fittingly sang says, it's not what our hands have done that can save our guilty soul. That's not in our works. It's not in our baptism. It's not in any other thing. It only comes in repenting of sins and trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. To those who are in Christ tonight, Christ is to be proclaimed, just as John did. He is the Lamb of God who takes away sin, but how is the world to know if we are not to tell them? And so may we all be faithful as John was to bear witness to Christ, and may we all together behold 
our lamb. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was proclaimed by John, who has put an end to sacrifice, um, who is the reality that we remember and that we witness in baptism. I pray that your spirit would confirm these truths in our hearts, that we would live hopefully and expectantly in light of this, and that we would proclaim this gospel any place that we have opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.